So we're going to have some fun today because we get to take this storybook out of the children's library and we're going to glean some truths for us as adults and as students. This is a story you've probably heard many, many times, but I really heard a strong word from God today that I'm going to take with me just because of this story of Jonah. So if we gather our collective wisdom or we paid attention during the children's moment, we learned that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Why Nineveh? They're being bad, right. And what did Jonah do in response to God's claim? He went the other way. So if Nineveh is this way, Jonah went as far as he could that way to Tarshish. And what did God do once the ship set sail? started getting rough, the tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the meadow would be lost. The meadow would be lost. Yes, indeed. What was Jonah doing during that great storm? He's sleeping in the hold of the ship. What is it with guys falling asleep on the ship? Remember when Jesus did that? Like going, ah, hello? Anyway, so the sailors cast lots to see what the problem was. Why are they getting encapsulated by this huge raging storm? And to cast lots means that they would do this thing that was an unbiased um, way of deciding what the problem was. So in our house, we had decision dice. Now, decision dice didn't help us make any great big decisions, but what it did was help us solve the little tiny decisions that would hopefully end all the whining that was going on. So if the two girls, not naming names, but they wanted to play a game and they were arguing that this one wanted to play this game and this one wanted to play that game, and it went on for way, way too long, we would finally say, get the decision dice. So they would get them out of the kitchen drawer and they would roll the die, and the highest number won. No more discussion, it's over, because we now have this unbiased, impartial decision, not based on who we liked better, not based on politics, not based on favoritism, none of that stuff. It was the decision dice that ruled. So this is what these sailors did. They took their version of the decision dice, and they voted Jonah off the boat. So Jen Clifton is going to come up and give me a hand here because we've got a lot of Bible passages to work through today in the book of Jonah. So we're going to start with Jonah chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. Then they said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more stormy against them. 
Then they cried out to the Lord, please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So Jonah's thrown overboard, the storm stops immediately, and then God sends something to save Jonah. He sends this big fish or whale to swallow him whole. And how long is he in that belly? Three days. So in chapter two of Jonah, it's just one great big prayer from Jonah saying, oh Lord, please help me, help me, help me. I promise, I promise I will do everything right from now on. I'll go to Nineveh, whatever you say, just get me out of the belly of this whale. It's kind of like that guy who had to do like that last minute Christmas shopping for his wife. And so he was trying to squeeze it in right, be right after lunch and right before this big meeting that he had back at the office. So he's driving through the parking lot and everybody else has to get their last minute shopping done too, so he can't find a spot. So he's driving up and down the aisle and up and down the aisle. Please God, he's praying, please God, just give me a spot. If you give me a spot, I promise, I will go to church every single week. I will pray every single day, just give me a spot. He turns the corner and lo and behold, there is the empty parking spot. And he looks up and he says, never mind, I found one. <laughs> well, Jonah is kind of doing that same thing, right? He is praying like crazy, bargaining for everything that he's worth just to get out of the belly of this whale. At the end of chapter two, it says, then the Lord spoke to the fish. I couldn't help but think of Dory in Finding Nemo about how she spoke whale. Excuse me, Woo! little fella. Hey, hello. Don't be rude, say hi. <laughs> hello. His son Bingo, Nemo. Nemo, was taken to uh, Sydney. Sydney. Yes, and it's really, really important that we get there as fast as we can. So can you help us out? Come on, little fella. Come on. Dory, I'm a little fella. I don't think that's a little fella. Oh, oh, oh big fella. Big fe whale. Okay. Maybe he only speaks whale. Maybe I should try humpback. No, don't try humpback. Whoa! Whoa! You actually sound sick. Maybe louder, huh? Don't do that. Too much orca. Didn't that sound a little orca-ish? It doesn't sound orca. It sounds like nothing I've ever heard. No. It's just as well. He might be hungry. Don't worry. Whales don't eat clownfish. They eat krill. Oh, look. Krill. Okay, so I think God probably had his own way of speaking to the whale, but he basically told this big fish to spit Jonah out, and he did. He spit him out up on the shore. 
And so now we pick up the reading in chapter 3, where the God of second chances says, says in verse 2, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. And our reluctant prophet preaches the shortest sermon of all time with probably the least amount of animation that he could muster up. Jonah says five Hebrew words that basically mean repent in 40 days, Nineveh's gonna be overthrown. Jen, what happened next after this powerful sermon? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. So when the king heard this, he too put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. So you know, sackcloth was that sign of mourning, like if someone died and ashes was, those two things together were great repentance. We're so sorry for everything that we did. We repent, we wanted to be better, we wanna be, be made right with God, and so we will change our ways. So here, the king issues a proclamation. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. And what did God do? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And they lived happily ever after, right? Um, almost, except for our petulant prophet. He prayed to God and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush, so it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. Jonah said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left 
and also many animals. Thank you. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, we ask for your presence and your grace to speak the word of truth to us through the words of scripture and the words to come. Amen. So that's quite a story, right? Now, do you believe that that is truly a historical account? If I told you that most scholars have called the book of Jonah an allegory, a parable, or a satire, and not a literal account of some prophet's adventures, does it ruin it for you? Or can you finally breathe a little sigh of relief? You know, the Bible is filled with all kinds of genres or styles of writing. So it's important for us to pay attention to these different genres because you read them differently. Imagine if you had a newspaper article, a letter, or a poem. You would read them with different expectations, right? You expect true facts out of a newspaper article. They may be biased, but you expect true facts but you wouldn't run a poem through a fact checker, checker because it's someone's artistic expression. Think of the way that Jesus usually got his messages across. He would tell a parable which isn't historically true. The point of the story is to tell us a truth in, that we need to know in hopes that it will change our lives. So the question shouldn't be, is every word in the Bible historically correct and can it be proved? Well, no, because the Bible is not a history book. It's a book filled with poetry, history, law, letters, parables, and narratives, and stories. So the better question might be, does this scripture passage lead us into God's truth? Well, when I think about the book of Jonah, I know the answer. Absolutely. The truth hit me right between the eyes this time as I was reading through Jonah, and that is that God just will not give up on us. Jonah said it in a whiny way, but we can claim it in a truth-telling way. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So God has a prophet who by definition, is a spokesman for God. Prophets bring judgment, they bring warning, and they bring hope to a people. Now, typically, Israel's prophets were fiercely obedient to the law while their audiences were stubborn sinners who were quicker to kill the prophet than to take their message seriously. The prophet Jonah gets this word from God to go to Nineveh, and just before he jumps the boat to go in the opposite direction, he says, no, God, no, anywhere but Nineveh. What is his problem? What do we know about Nineveh? Well, I always thought it was a city that was mostly filled with people doing a lot of wicked things, you know, partying, drugs, sex, alcohol, worshiping idols, and some of that may have indeed been going on, but I only learned from this reading and the research that I did this time that Nineveh is the capital of Israel's greatest enemy, Assyria. So if Jonah preaches this message of repentance to them and they do it, then God's not going to destroy them. And it means that Assyria will live to fight another day. And guess who they're fighting? The Israelites. 
And they do it. They repent, they survive, and then in 722 BC, the northern kingdom is utterly destroyed by the Assyrians. So to ask Jonah to preach a redeeming word to Nineveh is kind of like asking an African-American to go with compassion to preach mercy and love to the Ku Klux Klan in an effort to keep them from being destroyed for their hatred and wickedness. Or it would be like asking a Jewish rabbi to go with compassion to preach mercy and love to neo-Nazi skinheads in an effort to keep them from being destroyed for their hatred and their wickedness. Okay, now I'm jumping in the boat with Jonah. I don't want these people to be saved like me. I want them to be judged. And I want them to pay for their wickedness. So just like Jonah, I'm going to run away and hide from God rather than share God's love and mercy with the enemy. Have you ever tried to play hide and seek with God? It's really not fair because God always knows where you're hiding. But think about it when you played it as a kid. Did you ever have someone who hid so good no one could find him? We did. And after a while, we'd just give up on him and go off and let him rot wherever he was. But God's not like that, thankfully. He never, ever stops trying to find us. Now, it may sound like a contradiction because if God knows where we are, he doesn't have to come looking for us to find us, except for the other part. And that's that God never forces us to come to him. He patiently waits for us. He gives us gentle reminders, sometimes gentle people, little nudges, but always, always it's from this position of invitation, the posture of open arms. It reminded me of this video of this little boy from Buenos Aires named Hernan. He has Down syndrome and his mom said that he um, was pretty shy from people and he really couldn't stand physical touch. But they also have this golden lab named Himalayan who would not give up on him. He kept giving him these little gentle nudges, inviting him just a little bit closer into relationship with him. And Himalayan was so soft and persistent and kind that she finally won him over.
no offense to cats, but that is kind of why we love dogs so much and, and how they kind of remind us of God. They seek our company. They want to connect even when we push them away. And in every way we can imagine, they seem to care about us. So while we try to hide from God and we push him away, God does not give up on us. I wonder if maybe he hasn't given up on our enemies either. Anyway, he uses all sorts of things in our life to try to connect us with him. He tries to motivate us to come out of our hiding places. You know that big storm that rocked Jonah's escape boat that landed him in the belly of that dark well, whale? Sometimes, sometimes it takes a really big storm in our lives or hitting that dark bottom to finally let God find us and to begin that journey back to him. And like that kid, we can be really good hiders, but thankfully, God doesn't give up. There was a young woman named Christina who lived in a really poor village in Brazil. She wanted to see the world, and she was so sick and tired of living in her little tiny house that was more of a shelter, and all they had in it was a sink and a wood stove and the pallet that she would sleep on at night. She dreamed of this better life that was in the city. So one night, while her family was sleeping, she got up and she slipped away. When her mom, Marie, Maria, woke up in the morning, she saw that her daughter was gone, and she was heartbroken. She knew what life on the streets could be like for her young, attractive daughter. Her mom quickly packed her bag, and as she was going to the bus stop, she stopped at a drugstore for one thing, pictures. She got into one of those old-time photo booths, and she closed the curtain, and she took as many pictures of herself as she could afford and she stuffed them in her purse, and she jumped on the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew that Christina had no way of earning money, and she also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, people will do things that they never dreamed they would ever, ever do. So Maria went to every bar, nightclub and hotel that had a reputation for street, street walkers and for prostitutes. She looked for her daughter and she would do the same thing at every place of business. She would take out one of her little pictures and she would tape it to the bathroom mirror or she would put it on the bulletin board of the hotel. It wasn't that long before her money and her pictures ran out and she had to go back home. So Maria got back on that bus and cried the whole way back to her little village. A few weeks later, Christina was walking down the stairs of the hotel. Her young face was much older and way too tired for her age. Her brown eyes that used to dance with joy, now they spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she wished that she could just trade those countless beds for her safe pallet. 
but there were too many reasons, too many things that felt like her village was just way too far away. And when she got to the bottom of the stairs, she looked up and she recognized a familiar face. She saw this little black and white picture of her mom and her eyes burned and her throat tightened and she grabbed that picture and in her mother's handwriting, she turned it over and there was this compelling invitation. It said, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. Friends, we worship a compassionate God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, a God who never, ever will give up on us. Amen.